it's not meant to be gotcha. It's meant to be. So, Peter, Andre, tell us about your incredibly fucking exciting life. <laughs> so, welcome everybody to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm in the Vegetarian's Delight, aka the Slaughtered Lamb, next to what's going to be one of the most energy draining buildings in London, namely a big new cloud computing centre. And I'm with someone I've known for a while, but haven't seen for a while, Peter Fleming, mm -hmm. and a newer friend, Andre Spicer. So, guys, boys, gentlemen, thank you very much for coming along to Vegetarian's Delight, Vegan Heaven, the Slaughtered Land. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. And Andre, you are Cass Business School, and so are you, Peter. You've been there a couple of years. Andre. Yeah. Peter, you just joined. Uh, one month. One month. One month. So, very, very new. But I'm not here to ask you your views of the, the sorry, Sir John Cass School of something or other, whatever <laughs> it is, is, we yeah. don't know. Yeah. But rather to find out about A, what you guys are up to, and B, what's interesting you at the moment. Yeah. So it can be very free form. We can also talk about the past. Okay. But you know, just have at it in terms of what's interesting for you. I know you have a very new book out uh, yes, I've uh, got a new book out on corporate social responsibility, or the end of corporate end social of. responsibility. CSR's corporate social responsibility was over, but wandering vaguely into cast, it seems as though it's not over. Can you guys help me? What does the book tell us about the end of whatever it is? Well, it's uh, it's one of the few budgets in the corporate world that are increasing, amazingly enough. So, um, corporate reputation, branding. Uh, you know, um, ways of making business and society seem at one with each other, which CSR has always tried to do and has always failed, of course. So it is, it is taking on a new sort of uh, lease of life. And my book is simply to say that it's, uh, it's highly flawed as, a, as, a, as an ideology and also as a business practice and to see if there's anything that could actually be made meaningful in terms of in terms of reforming our, uh, 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 business more generally. Now, the reason I thought it was dead and buried was that the UN adopted it, which always seems <laughs> so, the case of death. Yeah. But I'm sure your analysis is somewhat more profound, as well as broader than that. I mean, is it? I mean, a Marxist position would obviously be look and would be very similar to sure. a classical business position, which is sure we have. There's a core thing that this is really all about. It's not sure. being nice to people. Uh, we might have to pay people off or obey the law, but basically we're here to make money. Sure. And everything else is actually not what shareholders, mm -hmm. as opposed to stakeholders, will permit. And you could say that sure. from a leftist position or a right position. Definitely, in that respect, you know, uh, Milton Friedman in his statement in the early 70s and uh, very, a very hard-nosed Marxist position would be quite obviously normatively quite different but descriptively quite quite similar but something really strange has happened because since then it's become it's become a, a, a very mainstream part of the way in which a business presents itself especially large organizations uh, to to various various uh, uh, factions in society from the state to consumers etc etc and of course there is a there is a correlation between how evil you are as a business and how much money you put into CSR and there have been, there've been some very very good studies on showing that showing that relationship so I guess you know I start off the book by saying the title of the book end of the end of CSR is a misnomer because it never really began and so if it never really began how do we make sense of it and there's this kind of internal 
perpetual failure within the very discourse of CSR that actually has an ideological mechanism that I think is wedded very closely to the neoliberal project, especially a neoliberal project that's in, in, in massive, mass decline. So, so some sort of simple examples of this. I was visiting a friend recently in Switzerland and he made the point that um, recently they're in the same city as Philip Morris's headquarters. And a few years ago, Philip Morris approached them, realised they had a CSR problem, and said, uh, what can we do? Well, let's here's, here's an undisclosed number of millions. We'd like to set up a chair, a chair of business ethics. And the very same thing has happened at uh, a university in the UK, where they set up a chair of business ethics, and it was paid for by British American Tobacco. So what you often find is that business ethics activities, whether it's teaching business ethics or uh, indeed doing business ethics, seems to be done by organisations which are often the most evil. Duke University in the Carolinas is part of Tobacco Road, mm. it's where it draws its money from, and the medical school has a tobacco cessation group funded by tobacco industry. Yeah. Uh, if you look back at the beginnings of public television's major corporate sponsorship for television programs in the United States, it's, it happens at the same time as the New York Times points for the first time, Time Magazine, sorry, points for the first time an environmental correspondent who's looking into pollution, and the big corporate sponsorship comes from the oil sector. Mm, yeah. Mm, mm, that's interesting. And also, it's... You know, I think that CSR becomes prominent, especially when a very extreme brand of capitalism becomes prominent. In other words, when a very anti-social brand of capitalism becomes prominent, we see CSR emerge onto the horizon of things that people in business and, and, and in the state can talk about. And I think, you go back to what Foucault was talking about in the birth of, uh, the birth of biopolitics, you know, an integral, integral in this neoliberal ideology is this, this fantasy of capitalism without capitalism, yeah. I think he terms it, and I think CSR really plays into that. Into that. Well, if you go back, I mean, if you go back 50 or 60 years, you will find the CEO of General Motors, or any big corporation, mm. the CEO of General Motors famously said this, right? what's good for General Motors is good for America, what's yep. good for America is good for General Motors, yep. which is not about shareholder capitalism at all, is no, it? No, 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 not at all, not at all, no. It seems to be about the kind of point of, I suppose, uh, not just kind of uh, making money off products, but kind of almost changing the policy environment and also opening up new markets. So, I mean, another kind of interesting point is that the times when you see there's been upswings of CSR activity is precisely the moment that capitalism is kind of a deep crisis. So, for instance, uh, um, there's some historical work which is done recently on the rise of early modern capitalism, and by early modern I mean uh, the early 16th, early 16th century. And when corporations were first set up in London, um, kind of modern corporations, shareholder-based corporations, the advertising which appeared for them didn't just say, join this company, buy some shares and you're going to make money. It said, join this company, buy some shares, you'll make money, but you'll also do your duty to the king and also uh, you're going doing something which is socially responsible. So in a sense, social responsibility isn't something which is a new arrival on the scene. It's always been there. So government, this is the moment of governmentality as well. Exactly. So governmentality and CSR are things that you guys would put on continuum. 
Definitely, definitely, definitely. Uh, I think I think it's an interesting version, especially especially as neoliberalism is so antisocial and antithetical to actually being a human being. You see, you see a uh, class war in the purest sense of the term. You see, you see a particular. Uh, surfeit of uh, of sociality emerging from the corporate sector, and I think that CSR plays that role. What I find interesting about CSR as well is its fixation on death. And I'm just beginning to think through this a little bit more. Some of the people who think that society is really screwed is uh, beyond saving uh, is terminally, terminally. Uh, bankrupt uh, some of the people that turn up at CSR conferences, which I find quite interesting. <laughs> you know, uh, and I think there's this inversion, this inversion, you know, uh, if I was to be put on my Freudian hat, maybe my luck only, would be, would be not to save society, but to really see it through to the end. You know, this is the nihilism, with nihilism. Ashul and Bende's ideas about necropolitics. Yeah, right? yeah. Particularly as applied to First world or global north's gaze at third world or global south suffering. Mm -hmm. I mean, I look at Bill Gates and Melinda Gates being heralized for their you know, talk about rook pie mosquito nets to people who do this and that. Yeah. And I think, well, that's good. What about criticizing the way pharmacology is obsessed with life enhancement for 80 year old wealthy white people mm -hmm. and not obsessed with providing drugs? For, uh, that will create lives basically for millions of people all over the world. Sure. The answer is, is to why that doesn't happen is, of course, that there's not a market for it. Yeah. How yeah. about focusing on that instead of, you know, flying on a private plane with bombers or something? <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So, now what it just means that you guys can do this in a business school. If you were saying it in sociology, I'd expect it, although not necessarily this level of sophistication, but I would know that you had no students. <laughs> but you're saying it at a business school, a famous business school, where I suspect you have lots of students. So tell me about that. How would you explain Not necessarily in terms of caps, but in general. Yeah. Where does this kind of critical gaze, even at CSM, get purchased? So one, I mean, I suppose one point to start with is business schools were initially set up essentially to train people who were essentially engineers, have been engineers for five, ten years, and turn them into general managers. Now the case is quite different. Essentially, we just have lots of undergraduate students, and most of them go, aren't going to go into the work to become managers. They're going to become workers, right? So they kind of realise, or indeed they already are workers, so they kind of realise that they're already subjected to these practices of exploitation um, and also the problems in, in terms of uh, the realm of consumption. So they're trying to understand that. That's on the one side. The second side is that there seems to be a kind of a desire to escape from cap the kind of capitalism which, in which we live. And, and that also comes from business students, and I think that they see kind of CSR as a potential kind of escape route from that, and a way of beginning to kind of, whether it's a soft escape route or whether it's a kind of a mode of trying to understand the own lives in which they find themselves. Mm. I don't mm. know what to you. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. It is a peculiarity, you know. Um, uh, business business schools do have a strong a strong tradition in social in the social sciences. Um, 
to the to the extent that it's one of those heterodox disciplines that draws on sociology, political science, etc., etc., etc. And it seems to it seems to us that in in a business school environment, you know, the students are wanting to know what's going on, and they're wanting to know what's going on, and and for them, it's also connected into career paths, as with everyone else, of course. But they want to know what's going on, and I don't think that the business school student is necessarily that different to a student that's taking critical theory classes in a sociology department in that respect. Um, economics departments, now there's the enemy. Yeah. I mean, the other point that's worthwhile making is when business schools were first set up, if you look at the classic curriculum of Slav Morton when it was set up for uh, the other early business schools, essentially they had three parts. Part one was business. Part two was what they called social services, which was essentially like um, social work, sociology, etc. And also part three then was uh, essentially public, public service, which was essentially political science. So in a sense, from the very beginning, business schools were doing these three things. It's only after about 1950 or 1960 that the business bit begins to take over and these other parts are pushed out of the curriculum. That's interesting to me because I used to work in a, merchant, a US merchant bank okay. uh, 30 years ago. And for me to have gotten ahead rather than failed, I would have to have done an MBA. And the MBA would have meant math and yeah. So only the one third of that that you mentioned first, the technicism. Yeah. When I moved to the United States, many years after I worked for this unnamed merchant bank called Chase <laughs> when I moved to the United States, one of the first things that I read was a New York Times article. This was in about 1993. If you've not read it, it might be you guys to chase up, which was called Class of 58, which I think was the first year of the Harvard Business School MBA. Oh, right. The first year they graduated. Something okay. like that. Yeah. Not the first year of the Harvard Business School, because yeah. that's much older, but yeah, yeah. the modern MBA. And they followed the life of one guy who actually was homeless. Wow. Who was a graduate of uh, to talk, and they didn't have words like neoliberalism to use at that stage. Probably already a European concept, but not really overall for the US until much sure. later. Than this yeah. And basically, this guy had had, he had lost his job, his marriage broken up, he'd become a street alcoholic versus the boardroom alcoholic. And things had gone on from then. And one of the questions that was occasioned by this narrative was that are you all just looking after one another? Isn't that the deal? Mm. Sort of C. Wright Mills, mm. power elite model. Yeah. That here are these genealogies that aren't hard to learn. And you're part of the power elite. said, you know, the first time you lose your job, that works. And then the second time, or when your wife and children leave you for drunkenness, mm. it doesn't work. Yeah. And it was really interesting to see, you know, that when, when they mapped it kind of academically, they had guys like him at the very bottom of society mm -hmm. who were graduates of this class of 58 or whatever it was. Mm. There were lots of people who had never made it, yeah. but were the men in grey fire suits. Mm. And then there were these other stars who yeah. just mm. ran everything. Yeah. But you know what I mean? It was really interesting. Mm. Those were my two encounters with business school. One, mm. get an MBA or you get a master job. Yeah. Mm. Two, Ten years later, or like, reading the story, there were guys on the street. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. I guess we have to remember that an MBA 
even in the kind of beginning used to be seen as a kind of an elite degree. Now an MBA is something which uh, secretaries working in a, a regional uh, department of a lumber company will do, right? So it's become a kind of a mass market degree mm. uh, and it's got no kind of degree of distinction behind it. But So there's that. But I think the other point is that um, the kind of... Um, the, the uh, what actually goes into an MBA has has kind of changed over time. So in a sense, when you were think, you know, when you were being pushed reluctantly towards the door, whether it's towards a business school or a, a cultural studies, yeah, exactly. Uh, it was basically maths and, and economics, yes. uh, which is kind of what Peter's mentioning, the kind of enemy disciplines. And it turned the aim was turn, to turn you into a technocrat who didn't think about questions of value. Or if you did think about questions of value purely for economic formulas, now if you go into a Harvard MBA, you're going to spend a third to a quarter of the time, to a half the time, talking about values, personal pledges, uh, ethics. Uh, you're going to be talking a lot about governmental issues, uh, how to solve world problems. And so it's kind of shifted in terms of its terrain from a kind of a technocratic model towards almost a kind of a neo-aristocratic kind of model of this yeah. idea that... So this is Davos. Exactly. Of curriculum. Exactly. Mm. Where exactly. You're, you're in this ski resort worrying yeah. about the people operating the ski lift. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. That's no, interesting. I mean, that is, that is interesting. And then I suppose the other thing is I did a, one of these podcasts uh, with Jerry Hamlin. You know, oh. he talks about the, in the podcast uh, how close together, in fact, scientific management, terrorism, and the human relations Elton Mayo School actually are. Mm-hmm. They're, they're both disciplined, but one has a civilizing impulse and one has a technocratic impulse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's more or less what yeah. Well, it's all. Uh, if you, if you definitely, definitely, I know, I know a little bit about Jerry's um, conversations with him around those issues as well, and I guess it always connects into managerialism in some ways. So whether it's got, which is, which goes back to our original point regarding CSR, if it's got a friendly capitalism face, or if it's got a technocratic face, it still has an, an, an internal logic that hasn't necessarily changed a great deal. One's more inclusive uh, and one's more exclusive, one's harder, one's softer, but you can boil, you can boil them both down to the same logic, which is, which, is, which, is, uh, which is something that the business school is always trying to grapple with, right? Because it's always kind of, kind of grappling with that internal contradiction as well, you know? Can business be part of society? Is it always going to be bossing people around? Yeah. But basically what you're most suggesting is that, I think, the crisis in part engendered by neoliberalism which is meant to resolve the crisis is what renders the technocratic model that I was invited to. Not irrelevant, but very partial. Yeah. Because the crisis is so profound that business school kids and scholars jump in and say, yes, but yeah. there, mm. there, are, there are people on the screen begging. Yeah. Exactly. And many of those business school students, their idea of going to business school is to come up with a new business model to set up a social enterprise in order to get people off the screen. So they want to kind of inflict their social conscience through kind of a discourse of business in a sense. So rather than go into the city and make lots of money, their idea is, is kind of trying to use business as a tool for social good. And this is being taught in uh, not just universities, but also high schools. 
high school. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. What in, in high school? Sorry to be so ignorant. Can yeah. you study a thing called business or management? Yes. <laughs> yes, you can. Far out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so oh, not not only can bastards have taken over the damn world. Exactly, exactly. So many, many people will do business. Which the kind of irony is that if if you really want to get into elite, the the worst way to do it is to study business at at, uh, at uh, particularly high school level. You should be studying mathematics and Latin and these kind of things. <laughs> That is fascinating. Okay, so given all of that, it sounds to me as though you've got quite an interesting student body. You're both people with experience of other places, um, other countries, and other student bodies. Has something changed in your time teaching business or students? Is it different at the undergrad versus graduate level? Does it vary by nationality? I um in my I haven't I haven't taught at my uh, current uh, current um, uni uh, university business school at CAS, but um, what I found very interesting in my last class, uh, which I gave at uh, my previous university at Queen Mary in March, I asked a question that I've asked for many years, and this is a this is a kind of a sociology of work class, and uh, my question is. Uh, that I asked in March, everyone put your hands up if you're free. It's a way into teaching marks. Who feels free here? And when I asked that question 10 years ago, everyone put their hand up. In March, no one did. And I said, hold on, you know, uh, what do you mean you're not We're free? All <laughs> <laughs> no one put their hand up. And I, I think what's interesting is this ingrained cynicism yeah. that seems to have crept in. Uh, that has that's got a popular popular purchase. That's part of the business school business school cohort, I would say as well. Now, I'm not too sure if it's a good thing because we all know how cynicism works, right? It can reconcile us to uh, reconcile us to the status quo even closer than full identification. So I'm not too sure if it's progressive, but I found that quite interesting. Now, 35 years ago, when I was in high school, one of the debating topics we always had to deal with was the famous line written by Chris Christopherson, "Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose." This was an obsessive debating topic in high school these days. What do you think they meant by answering 10 years ago about being free versus answering you today about being free? Ten years ago, when they put their hands up and they said we're free, they were empowered agents with a with a with a with a sense with a sense of class class confidence. Class confidence. I've yeah. never heard that expression before. Class like confidence. I'd like some. Class confidence. <laughs> which is which is which is part of that kind of managerial ethos that I always try and beat out of my students <laughs> right from the start. <laughs> Because they're the worst, they're the worst type of people you want to come across. Ten years later, last March, there was no class confidence, and I found that interesting. There was a sense of desperate individualism. In other words, I know the system's shit, I know everything's screwed, so I'm going to look after me and hopefully climb the greasy pole 
Uh, you guys in the in the class with me, I'm not too sure if you're going to be with me. You might be on the street. You might be wherever you are. I don't agree with the environment. I don't agree with business. But this is what I'm going to do to get ahead, which is the perfect it's cynical. I wouldn't say it was Darwinism. I'd say it's desperation. So it wasn't. Yeah, desperation. It wasn't a sense of superiority. In fact, the opposite. And you could easily claim that this is then linked with the kind of decline of uh, sort of cop the confidence of the middle classes, I think, that there are kind of bureaucratic jobs which uh, might pay well to go into the shrinking uh, role of things like graduate recruitment, um, the, the kind of decline of, of any kind of meaningful job, even even going through the embarrassment, as, as Tony Judd calls it, of going to business school, right? <laughs> People aren't guaranteed a sort of a, a nice, quiet life, you know? And, and some Labradors, what they what they seem to be guaranteed. Always well, lives in Surrey with his wife, three children, <laughs> seven records. <laughs> uh, what they guaranteed is a, a, a kind of a life of uh, serial restructuring, short careers, and, and so forth. So 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 I think they recognise that very very clearly. Now. Definitely, definitely, but still wanting to buy in at the same time, which I find interesting. So recognising recognising that the totality. The, the particular historical juncture we're involved in at the moment is deeply, deeply, deeply corrupt and flawed, but nevertheless wanting to get wanting to get as much as you can out of it at the same time. And I find that I find that's how the cynical ideology works at the moment, or post cynicism, we could call it post cynical ideology. You know, where people don't even believe in their disbelief anymore. Um, and that's interesting. That's interesting. That's an interesting sea change in the um, in the general mindset of, of the students that I've taught. Could have something to do with my classes, though. So uh. <laughs> I think the other the other kind of sea change I'd note if, if we just simply ask a question. Uh, one of the questions that should often ask is, what's the purpose of the corporation? You know, every ten, every year, for ten years, and you normally used to get everyone putting up their hands and saying. The purpose of the corporation is to maximise profit or deliver value to shareholders, basically yeah. the same thing. Right. Now, no one signs up to that. They say the purpose of the corporation is to create social good and deliver maximum uh, value to all shareholders possible. So there's some kind of sea change in how they think about the role of the corporation. So on the one hand, you've got this kind of increasing idealism, let's say, or kind of socialist vision even of what the corporation is but on the other hand you have this kind of sneaking kind of desperation underlying it all so it's a self-regulating voluntary redistributive interest it's In not democratically yes yes exactly exactly uh, we have to do something about the fact that the fabric of the society is Yes, exactly. Yes. Well, it's a classic, classic middle, middle class reaction, right? You know, the middle classes are usually more so than the working class or the uh, or the or the ruling class. The middle classes tend to be tend to be uh, tend to, to, to be, be roused to critique when they see their own position being sure. being sure. being unsettled. So it's not not a moment of solidarity; it's a moment of pure individualism, I guess. And I guess that's what. Liberal capitalist democracies, so called, you find that again and again most of the decent welfare innovations that are for the interest of the working class come about because the middle class wants something. Mm -hmm. Childcare, they have a political culture to make arguments in favour of this. So 
I think one one positive thing might be the fact that uh, given the kind of spread of business schools, so I think something like a third of the university students in the world or more are currently studying business, right? Is that so? Yes, yes. And you you have to, just a simple, any idiot can work out that not a third of the people, at university students in the world are particularly interested in business, right? So that creates a large space where you can begin to kind of address uh, the things which actually deep, you know, that move people. I think whether that's uh, whether that's kind of theory, whether that's kind of questions about sort of um, social justice or or uh, domination, whether that's kind of questions about creating alternative worlds. So I think the business school, if you look at it within business schools, you begin to realise there's a lot of kind of. Um, Sort of dissenting movements occurring within them and alternatives beginning to bubble up right at the centre of mammoth in a sense, right? So things like critical management studies, things like kind of alternative models of the corporation. And indeed, one could argue that the kind of um, cultural turn has neglected to some extent some of these questions around economic models, how we organise, how we organise work. And it's only in the last uh, number of years that these questions about the organisation of labour and work, the organisation of the economy have kind of come back onto, onto the radar. And I think business school academics and indeed the few business school intellectuals there are, one could argue that they might have something to offer in terms of how we actually go about designing this new economy potentially. So I think that's one potential. Uh, could you help me out here with some terms that not all listeners would be familiar with? Alternative models of the corporation, the cultural term, critical management. Okay, so, They're both looking at one another, listeners. Okay. <laughs> so alternative models of the economy, I guess, I think about this, the, the basic point to make, which is often avoided, is that all economies involve a range of different models operating at once, right? So we think we live in a capitalist society, but if you go and look at an investment bank and look how an investment bank operates or a large law firm, it has a practical communism at its basis often. People sharing information, communicating, etc. Uh, if you look at... Um, say a large corporation, often there's kinship economies at work within there. So, so a detailed look at, 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 at kind of any economy will often reveal a series of different economies at work, you know, whether that's kind of kinship and trading of favours within a family, communistic relationships of sharing, the role of the state. And, and one of those things become dominant or hegemonic and try and take control, which is kind of capitalist relations. But I think what we can do as business school academics is to kind of point towards the fact that these alternatives already exist, the economy already works on those alternatives, and begin to kind of 
amplify them and put, put them into a larger place. The second thing we, which we can do is to point out the fact that the corporation is actually quite a marginal. Even though we, it's, we think we can name so, you know, the, the big economic actors, the corporation is actually quite a marginal uh, mode of organising work and production. So I think um, co-ops in the world have something like three or four times the number of employees and members than corporations do, right? So actually, the co-op in terms of employees is the, is the more dominant model of how we organize production in the world currently. And if we go backwards, there are hundreds of other ways of organizing alternatives. So uh, a colleague of ours, Martin Parker, and, and some others have, has a nice uh, dictionary called the Dictionary of Alternatives, which points out that there are a range of, I think, hundreds of different alternative organizational models and it's a failure of our imagination if we think the corporation is only one. And, and unfortunately, critics often contribute to that failure of imagination by just focusing their attention on the corporation and disregarding all the well, alternatives. This is one of the problems with the functionalist side to the political economy of Marxism, yeah. without a doubt. Yeah. There's no conflict yeah. in the model. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so all right, so that's great. And I've got to get this inside the dictionary of alternatives. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, could I could I uh, yeah. add a, uh, a a more pessimistic? <laughs> this is the new new entrance. <laughs> I think I think I think uh, Andre's right, and I think that uh, you know alternative. There is a there is what, what do they call it? A spontaneous communism that underlies any social form, be it the, co the corporation, be it whatever. But I think we do have to be very very worried at the moment. I think that we're entering into a phase of capitalist development that is capitalist, it's not communist, it's not primitive communism, it's not spontaneous communism, where the business analogy is being applied more and more, even, even when it so obviously doesn't work. And that then begs the question, why is it being applied if it so doesn't, obviously doesn't work? Uh, I, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it works, and I don't think most people think it works, and I don't even think that the people applying it think it works. It's being applied for another reason, and I think it's class. So one one of the yeah. one of the one of the things that I think is that I remain optimistic about, at least, is that things are things are things are pretty bleak. But at least we don't have this postmodern sort of obscurantist obsession with identity with, you know, the Leclerc and Mouffe sort of multiple discourses. I think that the situation now has boiled things back down to the essence and it's capitalism and more, 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 more generally class. And I think that's, I, that, that I remain optimistic about. Boys, I'm going to recharge your glasses while I'm okay. gone because I don't want to stop the recording of the conversation. I want you to explain what the cultural turn is or was, which means I'll only know when I listen to this back. <laughs> so we're having a lager and a pale ale. Yeah. Yes, please. Thank you. <laughs> so in, in one sense, I guess, the cultural turn is a kind of an obsession with, with the, the, the idea that, that issues like identity, discourse, um, and uh, kind of cultural attachment to ideas, very broadly put it, forms of justification, are the central driving force of organisations, uh, society and indeed politics. So the cultural turn then becomes kind of the focus on uh, if you want to create radical social change. Um, 
then the way in which you do it is by kind of fostering alternative discourses, alternative identities, etc. Yeah, yeah, I would say, I would say, I'm not too sure what the cultural cultural turn was, um, or is, um, or whether it's ended or not, but um, a challenge, I guess, a challenge to any sense of structure. In other words, that social structure is in any way primary or even even secondary for some and for some uh, in the way in which social patterns unfold um, so that so that we turn instead to text which of course is still important this has always been a very important but that text to the point where at a conference and this is this is this is indicative of the cultural turn where I started, I started to talk about exploitation and someone says that's just a discourse and if someone doesn't use the term exploitation in their discourse, then, dis- then exploitation doesn't 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 exist. That would be the culture term. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And I guess I mean I guess within our own fields, you have this mm. kind of going on, right? So mm. so we work in Peter and I work in the area of critical management studies, broadly mm-hmm. speaking, and it's kind of an area which has been quite exciting, and there's been lots of insights because management is this kind of dominant uh, discipline yep. in the yep. kind of broad sense that we all get managed and. We all hate being managed. Yeah, yeah. Um, So it's kind of trying to pull that apart. Yeah. But now, now we've kind of got to this point where people have become not focused on how management as a form of domination, how it works, what alternatives might be to that, uh, what new forms of managerial domination might be, but how critical management studies itself is a dominating discourse or text. Definitely. Um, Thank you very much for that. So rather than focusing on the kind of part-time contingent jobs, the impending environmental crisis, the increasing concentration of corporate control, you get to focus on how the discourses or texts of managerialism, not dominating people who work in organisations, but dominating the small handful of people who who might be interested maybe in critical management studies. So these extremely boring, unengaging texts which we often produce become some sort of mode of domination. Definitely, definitely, and I think the cultural, the cultural turn, you know, culture, text, discourse, and identity are very, very, very important. It's how they play out within a social structure, you know, which goes back to the 18th Premier, you know, which was a classic Marxist, Marxian conundrum, you know. So it's indeterminate, and it's not, it's not, it's, you cannot read identity or discourse off social structure or off anything else that's related primarily before it but nevertheless nevertheless one 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 needs to place a text within a context and that context is usually power and where does the power derive from and it's usually money okay well i agree you're not going to hear 90 percent of the conversation now what about critical management studies Okay. What is this? Where is this? Is it like critical legal studies was 25 years ago? You know, please explain. Okay, so I guess critical management studies kind of comes out of a um, partially a history of business schools itself. So the moment where business schools kind of turn back on themselves and begin asking questions. Um, so one of uh, Peter and my old colleagues, Chris Gray, did a nice historical study. We showed the roots of critical management studies basically lay in people who got PhDs or were working in sociology departments, particularly in the UK, 
during the Maggie Thatcher regime, they couldn't get jobs in sociology, so they could get jobs in business schools. They went there and took their critical sensibilities into business schools. So that was the kind of supply bit. But then the demand, I guess, is is um, a kind of a question about um, students becoming uh, more and more cynical towards business and the possibilities of business actually. Uh, delivering on its promises. And that's not just, you know, undergraduate students are sort of free for a few years to get drunk and sort of think what they want. But even MBA students who, who have spent two or three years in uh, the corporation or five, ten, twenty years even, and are profoundly cynical about the what the corporation can add and what it can do. So what critical management studies does, where it emerges from, is a kind of an attempt to kind of question this idea which seems to, it's it's very stable that management's going to fix everything whether it's in whether it's in a sort of a public sector organization a private sector organization an NGO if you have more man any problem your solution is more management and what critical management studies does is go and looks at that problem that kind of proposition and pulls it apart and shows how managerialism is indeed a kind of a central mode of kind of uh, power and domination, not just not just in kind of the workplace, which is increasingly important. So we have to remember we work more and more hours, our life gets taken up more and more by work and management, and people trying to manage our work, but also our private life as well. So if you open any kind of um, I don't know, magazine or something like that. You get tell, told tips about how to manage your love life or how to manage your relationships with your parents or manage your pet's diet and so forth. So this kind of discourse of management has spread not just in, in the workplace itself, which extends, but into all aspects of private life. So we kind of become little managers of ourselves in a sense. Edith specifically mentioned Marx and Foucault. This sounds very Marxist, Foucaultian, inflected. Uh, to me, is it, is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, critical management studies. Well, its its beginnings was in labour process theory. That was that was the first influx of sociologists into the business school, um, and they'd been trained um, in in workplace sociology, in particular uh, Braverman Bravermanian uh, labour process theory. And then as, as it developed over the years, it's slowly become a little bit more Foucauldian, I guess, a little bit more Foucauldian, for better or for worse, uh, it's, a, it's a debate. But I guess, I guess one thing that um, critical management studies tries to, tries to do, it's, it says it's, its knowledge is not necessarily for managers, but about managers. And it's not necessarily about managers per se, but managerialism. Because managerialism, you can find it everywhere. In fact, one of the places that you won't find much of it, to a certain extent, is in the modern corporation, because I know it screws everything up. You'll find managerialism in the university, you'll find it in all sorts of places. You know, so managerialism as a particular, a particular governance structure is what critical management studies is trying to uh, trying to deal with. Can I pick you up on that? Sure. Ask you to say a bit more, because. writing about universities as a part-time thing for about a decade now. And the way I describe what I've seen as tendencies within it is what I call the mimetic managerial fallacy, which is that 
proper organisations that we should model ourselves yeah, on. Yeah, military, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, and or corporate. Military, certainly in the US, is a big but my claim is that any of us who've worked in these institutions knows that they're completely laughable to the extent that they embrace the precepts that are being followed here in the academic So I'm just interested in whether you tell us what you said, managerialism is dead in the it seems and to be alive and thriving in the public and quasi. It seems to be. It seems to be, and there's a double. There's a double movement there. And thank you for the. Uh, thank you for the term. I think I'll quote you on that one because I've been looking for the term. Mimetic managerial fallacy. That's a wonderful term. Yeah, there seems to be something strange happening, and it's. Uh, I'm not too sure how to best to explain it. And, uh, but, the idea of the in the corporate sector, there's a major divestment and the idea of managerialism at the moment. Now, whether it's just whether it's just uh, smoke and mirrors or whether it's substan sub substantive uh, remains to be seen, but uh, uh, at, least, at least since the late 90s, early, early 2000s, there's been a major evacuation of the use of management per se within the business sector, especially large corporations. They use different types of terminology. But at the very same time, in every other sector that wants to be like a business, I'm thinking of, uh, is it Kalani's, uh, you know, what, what, are, what are universities good, you know, the business analogy, it, uh, he, uh, the, 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 a wonderful, wonderful book on, on, on the, of the state of the university in the UK at the moment. Uh, uh, you know, the business analogy seems to think that everyone, is, everyone in the corporate sector is behaving in this way, so we should as well. And to the point where I, I, I would, I would, I would, uh, I would not be surprised if someone from a large bank or a large corporation walked into the university, seeing all of the stuff being applied in the name of business, and be and be shocked, be shocked because they know it doesn't work. They know it doesn't work. They know that it's creating problems and obstacles rather than allowing things to get done. First of all, first of all, it's manage, management is about control more than anything else, and we only need to go back to uh, you know some of the great studies. For example, Steve Marglin's "What Do Bosses Do?" So it's a great essay because you know what do managers do? We all think functionalism, as you mentioned before, Parsonian functionalism. They help coordinate. When you've got a large group of people, you need someone to you need hierarchy. So it's to get things done better. So he goes into all of these organisations and say it doesn't seem to happen like that. In fact, they seem to be stopping things getting done. There seems to be obstacles in place. Why is that? Well, Andre can pick up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we've done work which kind of reflects that point exactly in a lot of uh, contemporary corporations mm -hmm. where we tracked employees in engineering firms. And what we noticed is that most of the time, managers were absolutely irrelevant to getting the job done, right? The people who got the job, because these people are highly self-directed, they know what's best, they can coordinate perfectly together and network across the organisation. The only thing managers were there for is to provide resources and to stop the kind of shit raining down from the top of the organisations, the poor ideas. So managers were actually some people who had got in the way of things being done. And the problem is that most managers, because they had no idea about the actual task getting done, 
they when they showed up, they were actually seen as time wasted. They forced you to go to boring meetings, uh, fill out some questionnaire which wasted your time, rather than actually getting the job done. Definitely, definitely. And that's why I would use the term managerialism rather than the manager. The manager makes us look at a particular persona, a person, individual. Managerialism in the university, you know, is, is right from the student body, you know. We all know as uh, university workers, uh, we can be managed by a student as much as anyone from above us, you know, through emails, through timetables, you know. So, so, so I, uh, in some of my classes, I've been managed by my students as much as anyone else, you know, but they're not my manager, but so that's why it's kind of become disconnected from the task itself and it's more of an ideological process rather than a physical person, which makes it even more dangerous, of course. And um, the other thing to note, I suppose, just to kind of wrap up this theme, is that um, if you look at where the big management consultancies are getting most of their business today, implementing managerialism, the kind of funky new stuff, which is kind of post-management stuff, leadership, entrepreneurship, corporate social responsibility, they do that for private corporations. The old school management stuff, control, public sector and NGOs, right? So. This is basically where they implement failed solutions from the private sector. Which is, which is great because we're all working in universities, so we should be... <laughs> oh, I need another beer, I think. Some of the destruction where the ultimate omega of our world should be the university completely is destroyed because that shows efficiency. This goes to something. So, one of the things which observed, which fascinated, we kind of observed doing research in the area for some time, which was absolutely fascinating, is on the one hand, we went and studied all these knowledge intensive organizations. And if you talk with the CEO, I read the annual report, they talk about knowledge, wisdom, smartness, we employ the best as the brightest, etc., etc. But then if you then went and spoke with the employees, what you would often notice is that they, the employees would say, we're doing the stupid stuff, which is completely irrelevant. Um, and, and when you would track a young employee who would say join from a, a very prestigious university, very high IQ if you did a, you know, I did, you know, like an IQ test on them. They would say, I picked up all this critical thinking in university and I arrived at my job and I'm stupefied within weeks. I feel like I've had a lobotomy, right? So they feel like precisely the things which they were hired on gets completely bashed out of them. So why is that? Well, the argument which we make is, and what we sort of found, was that organisations seem to kind of not just try and encourage knowledge and smartness, but try and encourage stupidity amongst them, their, 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 their uh, employees. And they systematically do that. So what we mean by that is uh, basically lack of reflexivity, lack of asking basic questions about assumptions, lack of asking for uh, and giving justifications. Why do you do this? Why should we do this? And the final thing is lack of thinking about goals. Right? And that's systematically encouraged, not by the individual, but the organisation as a whole. And then these people are smart, so they quickly realise, to get ahead, I'm going to have to act like this, and then they go along with it. Right? And the effects that it can have is, well, one thing we often realise is these smart people who, who sort of self-stupefied, if you like, these were the people who got ahead. 
these are the people who got ahead. So they kind of climbed the greasy pole. But also, self-stupefication was actually quite good for the organisation, at least in the short term. Right? It meant that people didn't fight, they didn't ask bad questions, they didn't uh, engage the, in debate. The smart-ass kid from the fancy college yeah. learns to shut up, and that means everybody else doesn't hate her. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Exactly. But the problem is that that's a double-edged sword, right? So in the... Um, in the kind of um, medium term, what happens is that through self-supplication, you don't ask the difficult questions. You often begin to then overlook errors and problems which might arise. Those things then build up over time, and lo and behold, you have kind of financial crises. Um, because those errors, those small errors which you overlook, those small problems, build up and build up, and they can kind of go nuclear in a sense. So that's kind of how stupidity works in organisations. And there's, there's a range of different examples of this. So one example here in the UK is uh, this bank called HBOS, which was basically a kind of a merger between two large banking corporations. Uh, and uh, these two banking corporations, one used to be a mutual, so it was like a co-op in a sense, and the other one was a uh, very conservative Scottish bank. They merged, and then once they merged, um, a whole bunch of people essentially who had a retail background, you know, they used to run chain stores, came and started running this bank. These people didn't know shit about banking, right? And the interesting thing is that they then hired people who didn't, knew very little about banking. So, speaking to one insider of the bank, they said that they hired complete what they called numpties to run the bank. So, the organisation, instead of hiring smart, you know, people with intelligence, seemed to actually go for and stupefy itself. So, we often have this impression that organisations, particularly these big banks, are kind of this evil overlords who have high intelligence and they're using this in bad ways. But it's often the opposite. So it kind of, in a sense, goes back to the point that Peter was raising about managerialism often operates not on the basis of um, kind of intelligence or smartness, but of stupidity. I mean, we kind of know that there's some basic things which work, but so-called evidence-based management, you know, like, so for instance, if you trust your employees and let them get on with the job, they tend to be more productive. These things are systematically not applied, and if they are indeed applied, they, they only get applied for a year and then thrown out. Documentary about Enron, the smartest guys in the room. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I didn't go and see it because I objected to the premise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, these people are quintessentially idiotic mm, yeah. in, the, in the short run, duh, yeah, yeah. you're going to make a lot of money that way. In the medium to long run, duh, they're not going to get bankrupt, they yeah. kill themselves, run up in jail, and move on to run other banking yeah. <laughs> It's clear that this cannot obtain the very long Yeah.
Yeah. They're just trying to make the like, thing work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The trains run on time and they will not break the property when they mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, this is this is one of the, the points, I guess, which which we get to as a kind of um, ritual restructuring, a ritual reform. So what happens is that, I mean, one thing to note is that uh, the, the kind of shelf life of managers, particularly senior managers, goes down and down and down, right? And the result of that is that when you come in as a new manager, you have to show your stakeholders or shareholders or whatever they are that you're worth the money they're paying you. The easiest thing to do is to do an organisational restructure. Get in the consultants, they give you some stupid solution which has not worked in the public, uh, private sector, which they wanted to sell into the public sector. You then uh, implement this off-the-shelf solution, you make some changes, you undergo it, and you, you also hightail it out of there before the shit hits the fan, right? Before the actual implications of that change occurs. So oftentimes these reforms which are actually introduced into organisation, first it shows no kind of uh, knowledge of what's happened before and the kind of wisdom of wisdom of uh, of the groups who haven't made those reforms but also also it kind of shows a kind of ignorance of the negative consequences of the same kind of reforms that have happened and uh, a kind of a lack uh, forgetting forgetting of the past this brings to mind the HBO series House of Lies. Do okay. you guys know this series? No, no. Oh my god. I have to watch this. Uh, it is based on some famous manager group, okay. but it's a series of programs by the United States. Second half of last year, the House of Lies is a dramatic series predicated on exactly what you just announced. Okay. Showing how they fly around the country. Your current plan, but what is the status of normal critical take 
alongside the people who are saying, we believe in all of this and here are the tools to allow you people to participate as students. Um, I, well, I, I have kind of two takes on this. I, I suppose I used to kind of see these people as very much fodder for, for, for critique and, and ridicule in a sense, um, which I think indeed some, some, sometimes that's necessary. Um, if, particularly if it's backed up with, with kind of heavy ideological illusions that this is the only way to do things. However, I think it's also necessary, it's the old adage, you know, you need to know your enemy to fight them, right? You need to know some of these basic mechanisms and how they work in order to engage in a kind of a proper critique of it. So much of the work actually on, on um, sort of social movements and particularly the union movement during the 1970s made the point because they kind of um, absented themselves, particularly from things like finance and accounting and knowledge of these kind of technical tools, they often rent themselves unable to actually engage in the, de in the debates around it. So if we think about the language of finance, for instance, you know, so in our school there's a lot of financiers. The language of finance is designed to bore people and to alienate them from engaging in it because it seems particularly tricky and hard. And my impression is that most people who have basic kind of abilities in mathematics, etc., and a little bit of attention can kind of understand it and, and engage with it. So I think, I think actually learning the language of finance is a way of kind of showing, or accounting, or indeed management, of showing how stupid it sometimes can be, is a kind of a mode of critique, actually holding it to account and saying well, the evidence of finance shows that, well, this doesn't work, or the evidence of, of management shows that this doesn't work is an important way in, and, and to kind of, in a sense, in a real sense, demystify this language and show it's not just a language for for kind of a series of uh, a small elite of people to kind of look smart, but to kind of look through it and realise that it's it's a, it's um it's something which we can all speak of. And I guess I would say that um, well, first of all, I would I would um, I would say to the listener that. Um, the technocrats in the business school aren't that different from the technocrats in other departments. I've seen technocrats in Shakespearean studies. There's something indicative of the university more generally, unfortunately. Uh, and 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 so 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 I think that's important to keep in mind. I guess I guess um, and the second qualification would be that every time I think to myself how I would speak to my more technocratic uh, colleagues, I'm just projecting my own narcissism onto them. You know, so I wouldn't want to use them to justify what I'm doing in my own research. So that two qualifications before I answer the question. <laughs> okay, put the boot in. <laughs> so uh, and then and then so and so to address the question would be to uh, but just to say uh, I'm I, I think that the university and it's a space and a time for contemplating the truth. And it's not going to be found in a formula. Great note on which to conclude. Thank you, gentlemen. I hope that I can extract a promise from each of you to come back into the pod, to stir the pod, if not the pod, and tell us more about your adventures in managerialism and management and managers in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. <laughs>